Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name's Tom Relic. Thank you for joining me. Um, one of the things about uh, COVID-19 and isolation has been people have a little bit more time than they otherwise would uh, to read books. Um, I've certainly been reading books, probably more for master studies uh, than anything else and some other stuff for leisure. So I thought we might have a chat with someone who's been responsible for things uh, you might want to read in the next little while, particularly if you're into uh, crime fiction. I'm talking today with Emma Vizkic, or Vizkic, uh, depending on how you how she wants it to be pronounced. She'll confirm that shortly. Who's written an excellent series uh, of crime novels uh, centered around some mysterious guy called Caleb Zelich. Emma and I will touch on a range of things, including what it's like being a writer in COVID land um, while, you know, Victoria is in, you know, stage four lockdown. Emma, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. Now, look, it, it, we've both got itches at the end of our <laughs> name. How do you prove, which actually is the, the story of the Balkans, isn't it? There are, it, it's, you know, there are so many itches there, the region can't settle down. <laughs> but it, 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 they scratch themselves all the time. Now, how do you prefer your surname to be pronounced? Uh, Viskic. Yeah, so there was um, – it's gone through a few different iterations. So it was the original spelling um, when my family first immigrated to Australia and um, there was an H added at one stage – um, the H got taken off. There was a, the, the original accent, the cute accent was on the C. And then with typewriters and computers, the accent fell off. Uh, <laughs> but the, the pronunciation has always stayed as Viskic. Viskic. Mm. What, what do you get? Because I know with Ravlik, it, it, it really is a Ravlich, you know, over mm. there. But it's, uh, it, it, for, th- for those out there in the audience, um, both Emma and I have got Croatian heritage. Uh, and the, you know, Ravlich comes from sort of the Dalma- Dalmatian part of the country. Yep, same here. Um, same here. Okay, another box. Yes, okay. <laughs> the uh, up in, uh, originally from up in Kozica and which is a little a village up north in the hills, and then people then dispersed. Um, and over there it's pronounced Ravlich, but out here we'd, it's been anglicised to Ravlich, okay? And the little little thing on the sea, it it, it fell off ages ago and we've never been able to find it yeah. since. <laughs> They're tiny little things. Um, okay, yeah. tiny, tiny little thing. I mean, we've, we've, we've you know, left a, <laughs> oh, every time you go to the lost and found, nobody's handed it in. <laughs> I, I usually get panic when people see my name. Um, I think because it starts with a V, um, they panic a little bit. But I usually get this chick or this kick or, um, yeah, all sorts of things. Um, I really don't mind if people mispronounce it as long as they give it a go. Um, so you're, you're the sort of person who gives hay for effort and the elephant stamp comes Absolutely. Out. If they've gone to some effort and if they've – if particularly if they've said, how do you pronounce it? If they panic and then mispronounce it, that's that's okay. They've given it a good go. I mean, I mispronounce names all the time. Um, but, yeah, I rarely get it. I rarely get a viscuit straight off the bat, I've got to say. That that doesn't happen very often. Oh, well, it, it, um, I, I get, you know, predominantly I get Ravlik, but it, it, the only time we get 
the itch gets um, added is if, if it's somebody who is culturally aware yep. or it's somebody who is actually um, uh, who's actually the you know, from that area or has a heritage right mm. um, now it, having having sort of gone through the sort of the foibles of surname pronunciation um, you seem to have had an interesting career. What would it look like uh, if you if you sort of summarised it on the back of an envelope, Emma? Um, so I, I started off uh, as a classical, classical clarinet player. Um, uh-huh. I, I sort of went a bit sideways into writing in that writing was my first love. So you could say very keen writer in school and then I went sideways and was a professional musician for I don't know, a couple of decades, and then moved back into writing professionally as an adult. Uh, and I think I first went back into writing um, just because I really needed to. I was just missing it desperately. And I, was, I love being a musician, but I really missed it. So I wrote, sat down and wrote a book one day and and by a book, I mean a very bad first draft of a novel, which will never be published, but I was hooked. So then I really, I think, applied the same sort of disciplines and structure to my life in writing as I did for music and have moved further and further into the writing world. So now I'm primarily a writer and I don't perform anymore. Why do you not? Um, why do you not sort of uh, perform any longer? What, 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 what? I mean, we stick with the music for a bit. What caused you to not perform? Uh, well, so I, I was both a performer and a writer for a few years. So that the, there was a crossover with the careers. Um, but basically, just there is just not enough time in the day to be both a performer and a writer to do them both professionally. You have to practice, you know, three or four hours a day. Then you've got rehearsals, you've got performances. Um, that actually doesn't leave enough time <laughs> to do the writing as well. Um, and and I think also that there comes a point where you you've only got so much creative energy, and more and more of it was going into my writing. Um, so I just stepped back and back and back. It wasn't an overnight thing. It, it happened over a number of years. Um, and then, yeah, one day I pretty much thought, I I think that's it. I think I don't have the energy to hold it to the same level and hold those music to the same level as I want to. Um, so, yeah, it was it was a bit of a sad day because I, I love performing, but the writing was definitely what I was really wanting to concentrate on by that stage. Where in heaven's name, you know, how in heaven's name did some guy called Caleb Zelich walk into your life? <laughs> you know, in a funny way, I think he's been there all my life. Um, it's interesting when you write. You... Oh, he's been stalking. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I really do. I think um, you often don't know why you're writing something until you've written it. Uh, and in fact, writing, I think, is is a process of asking questions and examining things that you, you're not even sure of what the question is a lot of the time until you're on the journey. And it wasn't until I'd actually um, written my first book, Resurrection Bay, that um, Caleb appears in, 
um, that it clicked where his character really came from. And it, it came from a few places. It, it partially came from a girl I went to school with who was profoundly deaf. And I, just, I, I met her when I was at that age when you really start realising that people have other lives to you, um, have different experiences, you know, when I was about nine or ten. But I think primarily Caleb's character actually comes um, from my paternal grandparents who were Croatian. And they, I had an interesting relationship with them in that I didn't see them very often. They, they lived interstate from me. But when I did, we were absolutely unable to communicate because they didn't speak English. And I, as was very typical of, you know, of the immigration experience of the 70s and 80s, I was not raised to speak Croatian. So we had no common language at all. So that um, writing a deaf character really became this way of me exploring communication, of exploring um, language. And, and also isolation, because although Barbara and Dida um, were, had a great Slav community around them in New South Wales, they weren't able to go out into the wider world um, with any ease at all. So Caleb's character first started bubbling away when I was in primary school and all my stories from my childhood involved people who were mute or invisible or blind. Um, and now I can see it as a bit of a, a theme. Uh, but I was absolutely unaware of it until after Resurrection Bay was published and um, a family member actually suggested that that's what I had done with his character. And I went, oh, I think you're actually right. One of those moments where people from the outside can see the workings of your mind better than you can at the time. Well, when you, And that's particularly the case when you're really close to uh, the situation, uh, whether it be the written situation or the lived experience. Mm. In fact, in fact, when you're writing, you're you're reliving this stuff, but in a different guise. Are you, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and it's an interesting thing to do as a writer. Um, I never deliberately set out to do anything autobiographical or to ever put real life events in, 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 in that literal sense, you know, this happened to me, therefore I'm going to put this in the book. But um, it is a way of examining your life and the lives of people around you, people you know. So it does tend to seep in or you put it in um, in different ways. So the emotions are true, but the situation won't be literal. The, the the interesting thing you you mentioned there, and I think it's a it, it it remains a migrant experience for a certain cohort of people who come here, where they are uh, 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 they literally plug and play in their own community, mm. uh, if I can use the IT term, <laughs> but but when when you take them out of that space. It is a completely foreign environment. They're uncomfortable. They will feel marginalised. They'll feel at a disadvantage um, and, you know, cut adrift from everything they know. And it's a really fascinating kind of dynamic you grapple with. Yeah. I mean, you think about 
in in Australia, what is it? It's almost fifty percent of people are either you know first or second generation immigrants. Um, yeah, and it's such a universal experience for Australians. So even if you're not from um, a family that's emigrated here, y- your friends will be. You know, you'll know people. Your your workmates will either have parents or grandparents um, who've come from another country. So that, that feeling of being out of step with the mainstream is, is a really, really common one. And um, when, when people are aware of that, I think it really opens their minds up to, um, as I say, that the fact that other people have different lived experiences um, and it's, uh, it's a great thing if you can get your head around it. Yeah, and the, the, I was coming back to your experience with your grandparents, mine was somewhat different, right? Um, in that uh, what happened for me was my parents were learning English while I was growing up. So I was learning both Croatian and English at the same time, right? So... And Croatian became the the currency of communication with my grandparents and with others. It's a completely, uh, it's a thing that in some ways it's a pity that other people, you know, we're of sort of our generation because we wouldn't be too far apart in age, I would imagine, um, that don't have that actual, that connection. Because the story, yeah. the stories, the stories from the grandparents aren't there. It, that's exactly uh, right. Yeah, you, there's this um, absolute fracture in the family between the generations because you don't get those stories, and those stories are um, they're the things that that make families. They're the things that make you as a person. Having those stories. Um, yeah, I, I think it's it, it's it's very interesting the way each different family does it. So my my father was very much like you in that. Well, he he grew up speaking Croatian. He didn't learn English until he went to school. Um, but then his parents pretty much. So your 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 dad immigrated. Uh, it, it was an interesting um, family split in that his older siblings were born in Croatia. He and his younger brother were born here, but they okay. they grew up in um, Western Australia, in, in Boulder City, Kalgoorlie, um, and pretty much... Mining country. Very much mining, um, pretty much uh, only associated with the Slav community. So he didn't sort of, he didn't, uh, even though he was born here, he was sort of in a little mini Yugoslavia there and, until he went to school. Um but he he said to me recently um, something that I I, th- I think is a really poignant thing about language and communication. He um, he said that his parents encouraged the kids to only speak English, even though his parents didn't speak English, um, because they really wanted them to um, assimilate and have the the power of being fluent English speakers and that they had sacrificed their own language, their children learning their own language um, so that this next generation could get ahead. So that's that's where the whole, yeah, that that you, you can see 
the the positive um, impulse behind letting the language go or in or almost insisting on, on losing the language but you yeah you get this this crack in in the ability to communicate over the generations see what what yeah, yeah that's an interesting um kind of observation uh, because what happened with me and it, it, some listeners will find this this kind of the two stories interesting. What happened with me was um, my grandmother was somewhat musically inclined. She would sing in church, right? And uh, uh, along with learning the language, I went. The second music teacher I had was a Croatian music professor who moved out here with his family, and so I ended up learning. Um, Croatian folk songs, mm. um, sort of songs of worship, songs of praise, all that sort of stuff, right? Mm. Which is basically built on the, the, the church tradition the, the coming from uh, that area. Um, and some of the, the popular music in Croatia over the years, Yugoslavia as it was then, was you know, stuff that had been nicked from... American artists with, I mean, the melodies are nicked from American artists, but with the uh, Croatian translation or Croatian lyrics transposed on the melody. Um, so one of my favourite party tricks, Emma, is that when I can, when when we do have a family gathering, which aren't happening very often now, of course, because uh, we're all we're all locked away in cubby holes, um, is to do the English and Croatian versions of Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain. <laughs> I cannot do that. We, we, which is a lot of fun. I won't do it. I, I know the guitar is within reach, but we're not doing it today. Um, but you could probably convince me to do it next time. But, the, but yeah, I mean, that's the kind of thing that I've, I've been able to mess around with. Um. And it kind of it keeps me kind of connected to the the other part of history of of, of the family. Um, coming back to the writing experience, uh, if we can pivot back to that. You said earlier on that you used the same discipline that you had when you were. You know, focused on music full time with writing how did can you can you take me through the actual um, dynamic of that how did that work you know the the writer's sausage machine is, is something that'll probably fascinate a few people oh it's an ugly thing <laughs> oh is it now <laughs> let's, let's rip the lid off and then show show it to the Folks out there. Oh, there's a lot of, a lot of tears and gnashing of teeth. Um, I, <laughs> it really depends where I am in writing the manuscript. Am I at the beginning, the middle or the end or anything? Um, so I would love to say that I have a very clear process and everything's plotted out and I work according to, uh, you know, 
clock and a schedule, but I don't. <laughs> what I actually do is each novel, um, I start with a scene or a couple of scenes and I basically think what happens next or how did we get in this situation? And because I'm, I'm writing a series and I'm writing a crime series, there obviously has to be plot <laughs> and it all revolves around Caleb what does Caleb want? Well, Caleb wants to be, he wants to be happy. Poor, poor man. I won't let him be happy, but he wants to be with his estranged wife, Kat. Oh, yeah. so what, you, you, you're actually got a, you've actually got a cruel streak. I have in got you, an incredibly you? cruel streak. So, so basically yeah. I, I come up with um, a scene, at least one scene where um, something terrible has happened. Uh, hopefully a dead body is involved. <laughs> um, and this has an impact on Caleb's life. So with the book I'm writing at the moment, uh, I knew that I wanted it to, it's the fourth and last book in the Caleb um, series. So I, I knew. So, so you, you, you're only taking one more opportunity to be cruel. To That's the... right. I may come back and do another series, um, but I, I'm going to tie this one off enough so that it reads as a quartet. So I, I knew which characters I'm bringing in from the previous books in this and I knew um, what what incident happens at the beginning. And I'm going to talk very obliquely about that so there are no spoilers, but something happens at the beginning of the book which basically gives Caleb an opportunity to mend a lot of broken um, bridges um, for him to be happy but at the same time puts him and a lot of other people in danger. So I've got this incident that has happened and then I think, okay, what's the worst thing that could happen next? And that's my process for the entire book until it is written um, very messily in some parts, extremely polished in others. And once that's all done, then I can get to the really, really lovely work, which is really working on character motivation and dialogue and all that really juicy stuff of um, people relating to people and and not relating to people, um, but I've got to get the the plot happening before all that can happen. So basically, I just get up every morning, and um, I start writing, and I I work all morning, and if I'm lucky, and we're not in stage four lockdown, that involves me either riding or walking to a, a little office, and and that that act of moving really helps the ideas at the moment I'm stage four lockdown so I can't do that I'm only allowed out for one hour a day so I've got to time a a walk or a run around that to get the ideas happening afternoons I usually write as well but I've got to be honest nothing much happens in my brain in an in the afternoon it just it just seems to switch off in the afternoon uh is is that uh, have you explored why that happens or is it just a, a thing? I think it's a natural rhythm because um, I, I was thinking about this the other day. My best practice always happened in the morning as well. Um, I, you know, practice for three or four hours in the morning uh, and, and talking to other writers as well. Most people say that their best work is three or four hours of really, really concentrated work. And then you can go on and do other work, but it's not that really raw coming up with new ideas and things. So um, if I if I really want to get good work done, it's in the morning or after 9.30 at night. 
brain switches back on and I sit down and I start working again. So if it's in the latter stages, because I'm, I'm writing to a deadline as well, I've got publishers deadlines. Um, if it's in the latter stages where I've, I've got edits or I'm really polishing the work, um, I will I'll pretty much work around the clock. I'll, you know, sleep for a few hours and then get up and work again. I'll be, I'll, I'll be there. I'll be there shortly with, with the, with the book I've, uh, uh, I've got with a publisher at the moment. It's it, 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 getting it prettied up by a desktop person and it'll come back to me in some form and there won't be much sleep for a few yeah, days. Yeah, it gets really intense. I mean, I actually really like that intense period. Do you, do you like doing that? I don't mind intensity. I mean, you get, if you can see the if you can see the objective, mm, yeah, yeah. Um, and I'm a sucker for punishment because there are two assignments during the next few days for a uni subject as well. Um, call me crazy. Uh, some people would, but the it's that it's the deadline that sometimes forces you to finesse yeah. your thinking. Yeah. Um, whereas when you've got a bit more time, there's a bit of an elastic kind of period where you're playing and you're contemplating, um, you're flipping things around, flipping tiles in your yeah. head. Um, and it's the deadline that forces that flipping to happen more quickly. And perhaps some compromises you might not make in a more leisurely mindset happen, but sometimes they're, they're good things. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think you need to go through the the slower process first, but at the end, that that real pressure of the deadline, um, as you say, flipping the tiles. And for me, one of the hardest things is for me to make a decision. It's not coming up with ideas. It's choosing one and sticking with one at each, you know, branch of the decision-making process. So when you go, well, okay, this is due in, you go, okay, that decision. <laughs> you just make it, you just make it because you have to. Yeah, I think it happens in for me. It happens when I do news writing. Mm. Um, when I write for a, when I write something, um, which I did with Vulture City, which you know, took the better part of the, the first six months of twenty nineteen, um, along with other stuff. But I've got a particular way I think about things. Um, I like being as comprehensive as I can mm. be. And and that causes problems, right? <laughs> it's like I don't want to leave anything mm, out. I know, yeah. Leaving things out sucks. Yeah, it really does. <laughs> but sometimes you have to do it. And then and, and that's part of that creative process that kind of it, it sort of works and then you see a deadline approaching and you've got to move more quickly. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I put everything into the novels and then the last stage of it is actually about taking quite a lot of it out and just making it as clean and sparse as, as possible, only leaving in the important things. But I think you do need the, the pressure of the deadline to make that happen in the end. Once, I mean... It... What happens to you when a project ends, right? Um, because once you're in the middle of it, there's this, it starts, you build up to a crescendo, it gets all frantic and intense, and then the book's done. What happens? It's, it's, a bit of a, it's been a bit of a funny process because um, I'm writing a series. It's never actually quite been done. 
So as soon as I finished one book, I need to start thinking about the next one. Um, and usually I start writing almost straight away, like within the week. For this book that I'm writing at the moment, I I made myself not do that. I I thought rather than write a lot of material that I'm going to delete, which is going to happen anyway, but rather than you know, try and save myself a bit of that agony, um, just sit with it for a few weeks or for a month. And, and I did do that. Um, but it was very, very hard not to, not to launch straight into it. What's going to be really interesting is by the time I finished the fourth Caleb book, knowing that it's the end of the series, um, I I really don't know how that's going to feel. I mean, I, I, I suspect I, I've got some ideas of what it's going to feel like, which is going to be quite, um, I think I'm going to feel quite uh, flat and I think I'm going to really, really miss my characters, particularly Caleb, because he has been in my head for so long. Um, but I'm also reassuring myself I can come back and do another series if I really miss him that much. Did it- that's the interesting thing. I mean, I've been involved in intense exercises before. Like the, when you're, um, and this would have happened to you with music as well, when you've got a major performance or you're putting together a conference or whatever, there's a, ideas begin and then there's the natural pace of the activity that increases and all of a sudden this thing stops. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And you, what do you do? What do you do with the adrenaline that's led you to a point where, ah, we've done this and boom. Yeah, the the oh. adrenaline thing. I mean, um, is is really big in performing because you are on such a high after a concert, um, and you, me in particular, <laughs> maybe not everybody, but I think most people crash. As you say, yeah, absolutely crash because you've had the adrenaline going through your system and you've been working on this this wonderful project. Um, I think it can definitely be like that in writing as well. But it's a much yeah. slower process, obviously, because it takes you years to write a book. And then even though you've handed it in, there's, you know, you've got the edits and then you've got the proofreading and then you've got those last-minute proofreading fixes um, and then there's that terrible terrifying moment where it's actually being printed and you can't change it anymore um and so there's all there's there's always a, a bit of a um yeah a crash in that period for me but as I say I'm always thinking about the next book so it, it's not quite it hasn't been as hard line as with performing it hasn't been that really obvious uh time No, it um, it wouldn't be um, necessarily, but when you've, as you say, book four is the end of the road, at least for the next five minutes, mm-hmm. um, and how you stop yourself from saying, well, what's he doing next? No, hold on. He's not doing anything next. This is the, wait a second, do I really want this to? Yeah, yeah. You start second-guessing yourself. Oh, okay, maybe, maybe. Maybe there's another one straight away. No, well, yeah. Now, the, this is going to sound a little weird, I guess, because you're doing what you love doing, but what does Emma Biskic do when 
it's time to sort of um, relax because writing is work. Mm. Do you relax when you work, or is it, or, or are there other things that you do to um, to relax? Well, both. I mean, sometimes writing is the absolute worst thing I possibly imagine doing it. it's just so hard um, and other times it is just wonderful because you get into that flow state um, and I you know I look up and go oh hours have passed how did that happen so it just depends where where the writing is at, at that time um, the, the relaxing it, it is really important to step away from it both for your writing and also for your mental health and so when possible I exercise because that just uh, it just uh, clears my brain, you know. I, I walk or I run or I, you know, I once upon a time used to go to the gym when we were allowed to go to gyms. <laughs> um, I read a lot too, which is an incredibly boring thing to say as a writer, but I do. Um, but that's the way we. That's the way we instinctively also learn. That, that's right. Um, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. No, no. no yeah, right now. I, yeah. You know, after we do the after you know, talking to you, I'll be back into reading stuff for a couple of masters or something. Mm. Um, it's just the way we learn. Now, is it? Do I really want to be reading a whole heap of stuff on um, security type issues uh, for fun? Maybe one of these days when I've got the qualification. But right now, it's it, it's driven by purpose rather than by. Um, by the sort of having the luxury to just pick and choose. Yeah, I think that's hard um, reading like that. I mean, because there are certain periods of my life when I have to, you know, and, and even now I, I need to read this book or I need to do that. Uh, I think that's, I find that challenging with reading when I have to read something. Um, but I, when it's just me choosing what book I want to read, that's, I, I love it. It's um, It's something I'm just very drawn to. And of course, you know, I like being incredibly lazy and putting on Netflix and, you know, having cheese toast for dinner. <laughs> well, cheese toast is good for dinner. Netflix can also be healthy. What's got your attention on Netflix lately? Lately? Um, <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say I finally cracked and, and watched The Tiger King. Um <laughs> Oh yeah, I, I have I have successfully. Let me tell you, I have successfully avoided going near. Well, that. I tell you what, as a crime writer, it was fascinating because the personalities involved, and there is no way I could write characters and plot like that because people would say it's totally unrealistic. But I'm looking at these characters, going, "Wow, okay, that is fascinating." And just to just to balance that out, I also have finally cracked and watched Fleabag and loved it. Just absolutely loved it. Just fantastic writing, acting, characterisation. And very, very, very different from, from um, yeah, Tiger King. The, you, you, another question occurs to me, this always happens, but um, when you watch things, what draws you to it? I mean, in terms of crime and uh, crime fiction, the things that have always grabbed, grabbed me or, or the, the movies that have grabbed me, the things like The Godfather, mm. um, things like um, you know, 
Donnie Brasco. Uh, yeah, and I've mentioned too that feature uh, Al Pacino is, is in, in key roles, but that, that may or may not have been deliberate. But um, what draws you? Do you go to the crime stuff or do you just watch stuff that is completely unrelated to the genre in which you've... Uh, in which you write? Yeah, I. funnily enough, I don't watch much crime stuff. Um, having said that, you've just mentioned The Godfather, which is one of my favourite, all-time favourite um, movies. I think with movies, television, it's very much the same for me as with, with reading. Um, I am drawn to things with great characters and interesting relationships between people. So I do love a good plot. I, I, it, it annoys me when um, plots are ridiculous and there's big gaping holes, but I will forgive a lot for really interesting character development. Um, so having just said that I, I don't write, necessarily go for the crime stuff, um, I think Breaking Bad is a really good example of um, great character development. To see the characters grow and change um, over the seasons is, uh, yeah, that's what I, I find really interesting. Um, one of the few series I watched from start to finish in the sort of the crime genre was The, was the Sopranos. Yeah. And the character development there, even though you know, the people like um, former uh, gang members, former crime gang members like Michael Francis have said, say that there are elements of The Sopranos that would never happen in real life. Oh, but it's fiction, not real life. Uh, well, it's fiction. I mean, you know, a mob boss going to see a psych psychologist or psychiatrist would never happen mm. in real life <laughs> in that sort of sense. But um, uh, the character development was astounding in the way that program was pulled together. Yeah, absolutely. Particularly Carmela, the, the his wife. Yeah, I I agree. And 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 I think um, I I don't need things to be real. Uh, I want them to be believable. And I think that's true whether it's a movie or a book. I, is it believable that this character would do this thing? I don't need to know if you know Carl Williams would do it. I need to know if that character will do it. Yeah, okay. That's the other thing. Um, yeah, you got the underbelly stuff that sort of ran ran on the Nine Network for a very long mm. time. Um, sort of the first series that wasn't really meant to be watched in Victoria, <laughs> uh, which um, a lot of people somehow managed to get hold of. I've got no idea. But uh, the characterizations of of, uh, of those real characters in that kind of account. How do you find that stuff? You know, I, I'm embarrassed to say I've never watched any of the underbelly. <laughs> None of it. It bypassed me and everyone says it's fantastic. Um, but, yeah, I, I haven't seen it. But Andrew Knight was involved in that, wasn't he? And he's a fantastic uh, He's a fantastic writer. There's a lot of uh, there aren't interesting elements throughout the, the sort of the underbelly series. I watched the first and I watched the second, um, but I've seen bits of the others. But you know, the the first and the second were the the series that kind of mapped my 
awareness of you know real crime journalism in this country. Mm, mm. Um, you know, growing up in the seventies with the stories of Don Mackay and uh, Robert Trimboli and all that sort of stuff, and then you move into what we saw a little while back with the, the gangland wars in mm. Victoria. Um, all that stuff is stuff that the kind of was familiar in terms of the themes of contemporary current affairs and that of crime journalism. Mm, mm. As a, there's certainly a, it's a deep well to draw from. Oh, absolutely. There have been a lot of crazies around the place, sure. Uh, now, Emma, it, it's been delightful talking with you about a range of things. We've covered a lot of ground uh, over 40 minutes. Um, those people who are interested in looking up your three Caleb Zellich books need to sort of know where to find them. Where can they, when, where can they get your uh, your books and what format do they come in? From where all good books are sold. <laughs> so um, your local bookshop should have them or will order them in, otherwise online from Booktopia or Amazon, wherever you get your books. Um, you can get paperback or ebooks, um, and they're all actually on audio as well. On um, you can get the yeah, so the you're, C- you're on, you, you've got um, maybe you've got them on audible. Yep, they're on audible, or you can get CDs. Some people I know prefer them, but yeah, they're all on audible. So your uh, Emma Biscuits is available in hard copy, yep. uh, ebook, and also audio versions of the Caleb Zellich series. Thanks, Emma, for joining me today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, It's been delightful.